Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran children's and young adult author, Tanya Bolden. Bolden has written about 40 YA and children's books, and she continues to add to that impressive count with No Small Potatoes, Junius G. Groves and His Kingdom in Kansas, published by Knopf in 2018, and Facing Frederick, The Life of Frederick Douglass, A Monumental Man, published by Abrams in 2017. For years, Tanya Bolden wanted to write a book about famed 19th century abolitionist, orator, and writer Frederick Douglass. And then I would think, nah, there's 90,000 million books on Frederick Douglass. And then what happened when I went to D.C. a couple of years ago to do uh, a keynote for an organization uh, associated with Frederick Douglass, I got in early from New York, and they had arranged for me to have a private tour of his home in Anacostia. And it was an experience like no other to see, especially that violin, because early on, one of the things when I learned that Frederick Douglass played the violin, that has stayed with me forever. To see his library, his bedroom, Anna's bedroom, which he sealed off after her death, I felt as if I had time traveled. Then I said, I have to do a Frederick Douglass book. And it wasn't difficult because initially the reaction I got from editors was, there's a million books. People know everything there is to know about Frederick Douglass. My argument was that they don't because they keep him in a certain lane. You know, he was the former slave who became an abolitionist. But he lived, you know, years and years after slavery was over. What what did he do? So my, I wanted to say that this was a human being who was multifaceted, who was complicated, who made mistakes, who had failings. And again, I wanted him not to be a statue, but a man. When did you start working on this book? Ooh, dates. When did I start? Probably late 2016, 2017. Okay, so David Blythe would have been working on his... Right. His book came out after mine. Okay. <laughs> Which I'm so regretted because I like his scholarship and his work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you know he was working on, on this massive biography? Or... No, not until I think mine was in production. It, it was way too late for me to even get a galley, I think, of his to go through. Because, you know, it's always curious to know that you're you're talking about a major figure who has been written about, but also you're working on this biography of a figure who someone else is doing a massive... <laughs> yeah, I guess we both thought, you know, for our realms that it was time for something new. I mean, I, I drew on Blight's scholarship from his other book on Frederick Douglass about the Jubilee. And... Um, you know, and other scholars. But I also had the Library of Congress online with his papers. Um, and that was amazing research. I zeroed in on things like receipts because how people spend their money, how we spend our money, says a lot about us. So going through receipts, seeing where he had his shirts made, where he bought his shoes, how much he paid for a gold watch. That's how I time travel through the primary documents. Mm-hmm. Now, does your book cover his entire life? Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't start cradle. It starts in, in mid-1846 when he is faced with a dilemma. 
He's already established speaker. Uh, the first autobiography narrative has come out. He's got to decide, am I going to go my own way, start my own newspaper, or stay with the Garrisonians? Mm-hmm. And he decides to go. He decides to go, and then I back into the rest of his life. When I did a program once, I guess last year, and student, you didn't talk a lot about narrative, about that first autobiography. I said, because I know 7th and 8th grade, you're going to read it. So I can just hit the highlights, because that's pretty much assigned reading. And then for this book, what was your target audience? See, I always write for a curious, smart, 10 or 12 or 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't write for reluctant readers. I probably write for young me. I was very verbal. I read a lot. I wanted. I used to write poetry and short stories. So probably I write for young me. So that sometimes there are tensions with editors. They'll say, will children know that? And I'll say, some will. And I, and I think we need to allow those who do know things to show it. I mean, part of what I do in my writing is I want to kindle curiosity. I want to send you to the dictionary. I want to send you to a teacher or a librarian or an adult and say, I'm not understanding this, to make you think, mm-hmm. make the readers think. Have you gotten much feedback, say, from your target audience about this book? When I do school visits, I do. But then, I, you know, I be- became a failure at social media. So that's probably why I don't hear more from my target audience, because I tried it and I failed. <laughs> What do you mean? What, what happened? What happened was a friend gave me a tutorial for two places. And she said, I, I noticed third place, you're not going to do that. And I, I tried. And then I would spend all this time trying to think what to post. And then how not to be um, a shameless self-promoter. And people said, you know, take a, a, a Thursday morning. That's your social media time. And I could just never do it. And to be honest, Sonia, I would rather be researching and writing my books than talking about my books. I mean, other than this kind of situation where it's one-on-one and you're a real person, I know you're not a troll, you know. (laughs) um, A lot of writers, they do it and they do it with ease. And I said to one um, publicist, one of my publicists, I said, I know you're probably mad at me because I don't do it. And she said, Tanya, we know it's not for everyone. And that gave me comfort and freedom. Good. Now, you have, what, 40 books? About 40. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I don't have a day job, so... And so this is your day job. Yeah, I have to stay busy. <laughs> Keep those lights on. When you started writing for this particular age group of readers, how many books were there really geared towards African-American or people of color? When I started in 80s, 90s, there were more books than I ever had because you had Walter D. Myers, you had Virginia Hamilton, you had the McKissicks, you had Joyce Hansen. Um, so... Are there more now? It's hard to tell. We're in a tricky period. I mean, publishing, like anything else, goes in cycles. Remember the Terry McMillan phase? Mm-hmm. All the sister-girlfriend books? Exactly. So it goes in cycles. So we may have more now, but it doesn't mean that in five years we're going to have more because um, publishing is a business. And what I urge people to do who want diversity, who want books about all kinds of people, is to support that author buy the books because if the book is sells then the publisher will sell more and the publisher will tap that author and say hey we need another book from you mm-hmm. so people have to understand that while the author is there to do the creative part and the research part and, and and telling the story we need you out there consumers to buy the books you know if your children have aged out of the books buy them for other people's children donate them to schools shelters what is your writing process 
sort of no process in a way. I don't do outlines. I can't map out a book in my head before I start to write. I start with the research. And as I always say when I visit schools, research is more than fact-finding. It's immersing yourself in a subject. As I always say, writing is acting. So research is getting into character. So like I said, with Frederick Douglass, I'm online at the Library of Congress reading receipts, reading his letters. I bought another book of his letters, paying particular attention to the letters that were not written for public consumption, the ones that were really private. And it was there that I learned, for example, that he was in England. He wrote to this friend that a few days earlier he was in a state of melancholy. And he went out and he bought a used fiddle, and it, it cheered him up. And I read something else, I think, in Blight's work that led me to believe that he suffered from bouts of depression. Because he said something, I had another one of my bouts of melancholy. And I don't include it in the book to shame him or put it down, but to say he is all the more monumental a figure if he was also battling with some sort of depression. Uh, also, when I discovered that he struggled all his life with spelling. And so when I quote a text or a letter where he has mis I include the misspellings to say this is something he, and, and he was, I mean, his library had like 2,000 books, and he was an avid reader. So there was something, dyslexia, I don't know, but there was something that he always had trouble spelling. And those little personal things really helped me get into character, to, to know a person. And then sometimes, I don't do all research and then write. I'll research until I find my end. With Martin Luther King, I was reading a, a issue of Life magazine that came out the week after his assassination, and I came upon something in the article, and I said, this is my end. This is where the book starts. Mm -hmm. Once I know where the book starts, then I go, and I go, and then I get to some place, and it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I put TK, come back to it later. I'm sort of a straight-through writer, like, do all that you can, and then circle back. Mm -hmm. um, and some days I'll say, tomorrow I'm going to write this, and I end up doing uh, photo research or more research. So I don't really have a real process. As I said, I've discovered that after two or three days working on intensely on one project, I need to leave it because if I continue on, I get nothing accomplished. Mm. I just go in circles. Right, right. Was that the same process for the Coretta Scott King? Um... For the Maricha? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, well, that I had her memoir, and very little was known about Maricha, born in New York City in 1848. And her family was, I guess, what we call today members of the black middle class. Oh, so that wasn't Coretta? No, 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 I didn't do a book on Coretta. It got a Coretta Scott King honor. Ah, that's what it yeah. was. Okay. Maricha was about this girl who ended up becoming, in Brooklyn, uh, one of the first uh, black, I think, vice principals in the Brooklyn school system. But there I had her memoir, and I mined it, and then I read a lot about old New York. But I think every book, the process is going to be different. With King, I already came to it with a lot of prior knowledge. I had read Taylor Branch's books, other books. So for me, the most important research with King, I think, was listening to him. Hmm. Sermons, speeches, hearing him, you know, at the mountaintop hearing him in the valley. And as I'm listening, I'm imagining he's been on the road, he's just come home, he's picked up the phone, there's been more death threats. So I think it really depends on what the subject is, where you need to focus. Also, I read a lot of newspapers from the period mm -hmm. to pick up on the language and to find out what were the popular foods. Makes sense. In the context, the mm -hmm. society at large. What about, you mentioned illustrations. So for the Frederick Douglass book and other books, what is the role between, say, your writing and the illustrations that you use? Well, with Frederick Douglass, because he was 
fascinated by photography. He loved photography. It was democratizing. And he was his own PR person. When he was having his photo taken, he probably decided on the pose. So since photography was so important to him, each chapter opens with a photograph of him. It begins with the earliest known one, which I think is about 1840, and it ends when he's up in age to show the progression, how he came to that lion's mane hairstyle, which sometimes he had a part. At one point he was doing a part to the left, a part to the right, you know, all these things. So I wanted to do that because photography was very important to him. How do you get access to those kind of photographs, and what about rights? Since I've been doing this for a while, I sort of know what's at Library of Congress, where you might have to go to a a photo agency place, um, museums, and now with the internet, so much is just at your fingertips. And then, of course, yeah, you you have to find out it's something public domain. If not, does someone hold the rights to it? Since I've been doing this for a long time, I sort of know how to clear permissions and, and who you go to and, you know... And I know who, for example, will say, no, that's going to be $1,000 and, and things like that. And you know, and, but I find that people, when they find out the kind of work that you're doing and you're serious and it's for young people, people I find tend to be very generous. Okay, so why a children's book? Is there much of a distinction? I know that's a marketing. Yeah, it, it really is. I think you have to speak to an editor or someone at publishing because picture books, I think, are supposed to be four to seven and then middle grade is, I think, 8 to 12 or 14, depending on the content. And then YA is 12 to 18 or 14, depending on the content. Um, but I have had picture books, my one on Muhammad Ali, and I think it happened with No Small Potatoes about the Potato King, where I guess it's written for four to seven, but I was working with fifth graders. Because sometimes, too, some picture books are very sophisticated. you know. So it really depends. I write, I let the publisher put the age group on it. I mean, sometimes content, like you say, if this is really 14 and up, then I can include this content. But if it's 8 to 12, I'm not going to include it. Mm -hmm. The Potato King, who Mm -hmm. was that? Oh, Junius G. Groves and his kingdom in Kansas. That's the subtitle of No Small Potatoes. I was working on a book on Sarah Rector, the richest black girl in America. She had a country home in Edwardsville, Kansas. And someone said to me, that's where the Potato King lived. And I was like, who's the Potato King? (laughs) Then I was trying to declutter and scan, you know, material that I have. And I came upon, I think, a 1907-1905 Outlook magazine with Booker T. Washington's essay on Junius G. Groves, the Potato King. And I was like, okay, I have to do this book. So he was a man who started out, he was born enslaved in Kentucky. And then he became an exodusters in, like, 1879 when blacks go to the West because you can go to Kansas, you can get land free. Thus, we get the black towns like Nicodemus. And so he ends up in Kansas. He's basically a farm laborer for a potato grower. And he works very hard. He becomes foreman. And then he and his wife uh, save their pennies and nickels and dimes. And they buy some acres. And then they work hard. And they buy more acres. And then I think it was 1902, he was proclaimed by an organization in Helsinki, the potato king of the world. He had produced the most potatoes. And it was just one of those stories that whoever knew that a black man was a potato king. And, and the story is also it's about being an entrepreneur. He's provided jobs for people. At one point, one of the railroads had to make a special spur to his, like, I guess, potato silo or something. They went to Canada. They went to Mexico. And he ended up building a mansion there in Edwardsville, Kansas. And he had about a dozen children. He a had dozen? A, 
you know, they worked the land. They all became farmers. Uh, but he had a golf course. There was a park. He had a community store. And it's just one of those little stories that I could not not do. Exactly. And it's amazing because his story is not known widely. Widely. He has some family. And, and when, what's nice is when the book came out, I started hearing from relatives. And that's why I love history because there, there are probably a million other stories like that that we don't know. Um, I like doing the great people like the Frederick Douglasses, but I loved also doing the unknown people. Mm-hmm. Since this is an illustrated book, mm-hmm. how do you work with illustrators? You don't work with, well, unless you're a team where you're husband and wife. Oh. The author and the illustrator really work together because the editor has to, and the art director have to see the work to see which would be the ideal illustrator for this particular book. And then sometimes they will run names by the author, kind of as a courtesy. I remember once years ago when I did the book Rock of Ages, um, a tribute to the black church, and my editor said, do you have an ideal illustrator? And I said, my fantasy illustrator would be Jacob Lawrence. And he said, I know what you mean. And R. Gregory Christie became the illustrator of that book, and his work is often compared to that of Jacob Lawrence's. So sometimes they will run names by you, and then they choose, and then at one point you get sketches, and then at one point you get the work. When I write, all I, I think what I want to do is I want to leave room for the illustrator to tell some of the story. I don't think the illustration should just be decorative. Mm-hmm. So I just write thinking, oh, here's something the illustrator can tell that part of the story. It's a totally, I don't know, spiritual thing. It's, it's yeah. just something that I'm thinking, okay, I gotta, I'm going to leave room you know, and I can always go back if an illustrator doesn't do something. I can always go back and, and put it in the text. But I always just want to leave spaces. It's a collaboration of the minds in a way. Um, what's the basic difference or is there a difference between, say, writing a biography for a young adult audience or children versus an adult? I think the difference is that when you're writing for young people, you can and you should assume little or no prior knowledge at the same time that you do not talk down to them. So you have to educate them without letting them know you're educating them. The references they're not going to have. You also have to consider that sometimes what you put on a page may be not what the child reads. You know, because it was with Richard during the draft riots in 1863, uh, I had to say that the majority of the rioters were Irish. I made a point, though, that her house came under attack in Lower Manhattan, and one day during the riots in daylight, a police officer came by to see her father to say, are you guys okay? His name was Kelly. So I made sure I put that Officer Kelly so that you don't get the idea that all the Irish people were rioters and anti-black. And Maricha's full name was what? Lyons. Maricha Remond Lyons. Huh. And she was the first uh, black person to graduate from Providence High. Because after the riots, her family moved up to Rhode Island. And then she came back later and became a teacher for, like, more than 50 years. And what were her years? She was born 1848, and she died, oops, like, 1920-21. So you really deal with subjects who were born in the 19th century as well as the 20th century. Yeah, and I love the 19th century. Something about the 19th century that really, like, about 1830, starting 1830, I just... It's so rich. Why? I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't believe in past lives, but 
maybe I should, and maybe I, I lived there once. But I think it's just because it's that time where there's so much potential for America to live up to its creed and its ideals. You know, the abolitionist movement starting in the 1830s, intense abolitionist movement starting, and these ups and downs. And then we get the Civil War, and we think this is the Jubilee. And then we get Reconstruction, and we have black men in Congress, and black men sheriffs, and postmasters, and we have troops of black people going to school, children and adults. People have land, and then there comes the end of Reconstruction, and we get a backlash. So... And I think I like that period because it parallels our, our times. I mean, we've seen civil rights movement, women's movement, all of this tremendous progress. And now I think we're being reminded that if we aren't vigilant, there's always going to be a backlash and everything can be rolled back. And we think we're at the promised land, we've reached the promised land, but we still got to weed that promised land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Given your experience and your success in writing for children and young, young adults, what advice would you give to anyone who's interested in kind of venturing into that kind of writing? Number one, I would say read. Read picture books. Read YA books, middle grade. Read, read the, the work. Sometimes you may want to take classes. I think one thing I know I've had people do is they say, I've written a, a picture book and I have the illustrator. I'm like, no, don't do that. You want the publisher to buy your manuscript and then assign appropriate illustrator. Um, I just know that I look at some of my early books and say, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was so awful. <laughs> and that, so then what, you know, book after book, I just want to do a little bit better, a little bit tighter. You know, the prose, more poetic, tighter, simpler, better. So it never ends. That was author Tanya Bolden talking about her biographies, Facing Frederick, The Life of Frederick Douglass, A Monumental Man, published by Abrams in 2017, and No Small Potatoes, Junius G. Groves and His Kingdom in Kansas, published by Knopf in 2018. Tanya Bolden's interview was recorded during BIO's May 2019 conference held in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day.